Turn your Bibles tonight to 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5. That was a treat. I enjoyed that. Everybody talked when I was on vacation about what a good job that Kenny did. I thought, oh, it couldn't have been that good. But it was. It was. It was that good. And uh, that was a blessing. I really appreciate his uh, servant's heart and being willing to do that. And um, it's good, too, because I can lean on Jim a little bit now. You know, for a while, I mean, we just let Jim get away with anything he wanted because he was the only one doing that job. But now they got Ken, I, I can tell Jim, you better straighten up. Because I got somebody waiting to step into your spot. So... It, uh, that's a blessing. First Thessalonians chapter number five. I'd like to begin reading in verse number one. First Thessalonians chapter number five, verse number one. We'll read down to verse number eleven. The Bible says, but of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all children of light, and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep, as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken, are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be in the house of God. Help us to rightly divide the word of truth. The Bible has the answers we need, has the strength that we need, Lord, and help us as as faithful stewards, Lord, as as uh, faithful workmen that needeth not to be ashamed. Let us rightly divide the word of truth and may it be applied to our lives through obedience on our part. And we'll be sure to thank you for what you do. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, you've heard me say time and again that unless you know the Bible in context, you really don't know the Bible. Uh, you may know Bible things, you may know Bible thoughts, but you really don't know the Bible if you don't know it in context. And part of the context is understanding uh, who the penman was. We know that the author of the entirety of the Word of God is the Holy Spirit, but understanding who the penman was and, and who they were writing to and what prompted or occasioned this writing, and then what is the substance of that which we are reading. Uh, Paul writes this letter to the church at Thessalonica, which was really one of the more thoroughgoing Gentile churches of the early New Testament. Uh, undoubtedly, there were some Jews there at the church at Thessalonica because the gospel always went to the Jew first, then also to the Greek. And it wasn't uncommon uh, when uh, Paul and other missionaries were going about and planting churches for them to go first to the synagogues in those areas uh, and win Jews to Christ. But when you compare it with a, you know, a, a church like uh, Ephesus, for instance, where there are quite a few, or Colossae, where there seem to be quite a few, uh, the church at Thessalonica seem to be more distinctly uh, Gentile in character. Now you might say, well, preacher, why does that matter? Because these believers here at Thessalonica, they had been saved out of a life of, of pagan worship. 
with no comprehension of the God of the Bible, no comprehension of who God really was. In fact, the way that Paul says it is that they had turned from idols to serve the living God and to wait for the appearing of his son from heaven. So in other words, these are people that are not initiated in, if we can use that terminology, into sort of a biblical background. They have no concept of that. And that seemed to make this little group of believers particularly easy prey for a group of people that sought to deceive them and to derail their faith in the Lord. Uh, The heresy and the error that Paul was dealing with at the church at Thessalonica is uh, some false teachers had convinced these believers that the return of the Lord had already happened and that they had missed it. Uh, And that left them sort of obviously disconcerted, obviously confused and disoriented, but also disturbed at the thought of what does this mean for us? And so Paul takes pen in hand and under inspiration of the Holy Spirit writes this book to them. It's interesting. I I just checked before we were uh, getting up to preach and something like six times in the book of of, uh, Thessalonians, the epistles to the church at Thessalonica, uh, the word comfort is used. And these epistles were written to comfort these believers, to counsel them in right doctrine, and to comfort them that they had not missed the return of the Lord, and that uh, God was was still present with them, and God had a plan for them as a people. And, you know, I, I began to think about why they were so prone to believe that error. Part of the reason for that is because the world was in such turmoil at this time in human history. Uh, particularly for these individuals who are saved out of idol worship and saved out of paganism. And now they're facing persecution from uh, the Roman Empire, persecution from their uh, family, persecution from their community. And they were living in a very bleak environment where the world seemed to be cast into turmoil and disarray all around them. And whenever a group of people came along and said, well, the reason that's happened is because the Lord has already returned and you've missed it. And now God is pouring out his judgment upon this world. They looked around at a world burning down and said, you know, I can kind of see that. I I can kind of see that the judgment of God is being poured. I can kind of see that the wrath of God is being poured out. And it began to make me think about the day that we're living in. I hear people say all the time, and I don't necessarily disagree with this, but people will say things like, well, the judgment of God is on America. And I believe to a degree that that's true. I think one of the chief ways that God judges a nation is with bad politicians. Boy, we've got judgment with immorality and things like that and corruption. And and so I would say this, that in a generic sense, I think there's no question that the judgment of God is upon America to a certain degree. But there's a difference between the judgment of God generic and the wrath of God being poured out in the way that it's described in the book of Revelation. And, you know, if we're not careful, let's just say it this way. Listen, we're saved, sealed, on our way to heaven, waiting on the second coming. But if we're not careful, we'll start walking around like we're knee deep in the tribulation. We'll we'll just walk around as though God's fell off of his throne. We'll walk around as though the the entirety of our world has been turned over to wrath and judgment. And and this group of believers were facing this. They were battling this. And and Paul wants to encourage them that, yes, it's true the judgment of God is coming upon this world. It's true that God's going to breathe out destruction upon this world. But whenever they got born again and saved, they were appointed not unto wrath, but unto salvation. So he begins to sort of straighten out their eschatology and sort some things out. 
And I began to think of a phrase that's used. It's used a couple times in our text. And it's this phrase, of the day. Paul says that they are children of the day. Later on, he says in verse 8, let us who are of the day. And I thought about what that means for our life. Listen, you say, preacher, we're living in a dark world. I agree with you, but don't you know when you got born again, you became of the day. The world may be dark around us. There's no question. The world may be wicked around us, but that doesn't dictate and determine the life that we live in and for Jesus Christ. And so I want you to notice a few things that Paul mentions by way of introduction. Notice verse number one. He says this, but of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. Now, he's referencing particularly the coming of the Lord. And the reason he says this is because just prior to this in chapter number four, he has talked about the rapture. He's talked about the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And Paul says, I don't have to write this again to you. You know that this is true. You've just read this. You are aware that this is true. But I want you notice two words that he uses here. He says times and seasons. Now, these words have very distinct, specific meaning. Times is referring to things dispensationally. In other words, meaning that God has set things in order in a certain way. And then seasons reflecting the characteristics uh, that are related to those things. In other words, we're living in the end days. There's no question that term end days reflects the times that we're living in. But along with that is a season of depravity and wickedness in our world. Here's the thing that I take away from that, and that's simply this. Paul says, listen, you know that God has a plan. You know that everything is going right along God's plan exactly how he intends it. Let's say it this way. He mentions to us that the coming of the Lord is planned. It's not something that's random. It's not something I know we always say all the time, you know, that we say, well, one of these days the, the last sinner will get saved, uh, that, that God wants to be saved for whatever reason we say that. And, and then, you know, the, the sun will come stepping out of glory. We'll say, well, you know, one of these days, the, the very last, and then the sun's going to, hey, listen, the sun may not know the day, but you better believe the father does. He knows what that moment is. He knows what that day is. And I would say this, if God was going to wait till every sinner he wanted to get saved, got saved to come back, he, he'd never come back because he's not willing that any should perish. So we're not, we're not waiting for a good, you know, meeting to come along and the last sinner to get saved and then the son to come. That's not what we're waiting on. The coming of the Lord is planned. God has a plan. I think we get so used to living without a plan that we neglect to realize that God has a plan and that everything that's happening is happening according to the plan of God. Uh, things happen in our world around us and we're surprised by it. And that's natural because we don't have the, the knowledge that God has. But as one preacher once said, has it ever dawned on you that nothing's ever dawned on God? Nothing's ever surprised him. There's nothing that's taking place in the world around us that is throwing him a curveball. Everything is according to God's plan. And God's plan is not running behind. God knows what he's doing. The coming of the Lord is planned. But then notice what verse 2 says. He says, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Now here what he's describing is how the world's perspective of the coming of the Lord will be. 
He is not saying that, you know, it's going to come at a random time. But he's saying just as a thief comes at a time unlooked for, the world will not be looking for his return when he returns. Uh, in other words, they're not going to be making Hollywood movies about him, you know, and, and box office smash hits and New York Times bestsellers. No, the world will have lullabied themselves to sleep concerning the impending judgment that is to come. But you know, there's a phrase here again that I notice, and I just want to point it out. He says this, yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, notice these next two words, so cometh. Let's say it this way, the coming of the Lord is planned, but number two, the coming of the Lord is promised. It so cometh. It's coming the way that God anticipates it and has planned for it to. And don't think for one moment that he's not coming back. It's not say we, it doesn't say we hope that it comes. It doesn't say, well, maybe it'll come. He says, it's so cometh. And I know this to be true. It's been said before, nothing's as sure as death and taxes. I've always thought that was strange uh, to say that because like well over half the country don't pay taxes. And that has not mattered until these last 87,000 people have been hired. Uh, but, you know, and then I, I plan on escaping death. I've already spiritually escaped it. And I understand that it may be that the Lord takes me through the through the clods and not through the clouds, but I'm looking for his second coming. And there will be a generation that knows the Lord that does escape death. So let me tell you what's more sure than death and taxes. That's the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of the Lord is planned. It's promised. But then notice verse 3 he says this, For when they shall say, now who's they? Paul liked to play the pronoun game. When he talks about they, he's going to, in verse 4 he's going to say, But ye brethren. So when he says they, he means people that are not brethren. He means people that don't know the Lord, or let's use this terminology, the world. When the world shall say, when they shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Isn't it amazing? Isn't your King James Bible just perfect? Isn't it amazing? Doesn't it say it exactly right? Notice that they don't say liberty and independence. They say peace and safety. What is this world enamored with? It's not enamored with self-determination, independence, and individuality. Not anymore, it's not. Now, what is the world obsessed with? Peace and safety. It seems as though we live in a society that will surrender anything for the promise of peace and safety. Why is the world going to, with open arms, embrace the Antichrist? Because he will promise peace and safety. And whenever he does that, the world's going to say, that's who we've been looking for. Well, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child. And they, notice this last phrase, they shall not escape. Let me say it this way. The coming of the Lord is planned, it's promised, but it's prevailing. They shall not escape. Those that have uh, abused this world and its weakest, those that have uh, sought to uproot our biblical foundations in this world, those that have sought to cast God down from his throne, they shall not escape. There's coming a day, the coming of the Lord's going to prevail over all of that. Uh, one of the things that I think made uh, President Trump resonate with, with people so well, and I don't know if you even remember him saying this, uh, but early on in his campaign, you know what he'd say? He'd say, we're going to win. You remember him saying that? We're going to win. We're going to win so much you'll be sick of winning. You remember hearing him say that? We're going to win all the time. America's going to win again. You know why people resonated to that? Because we're sick of losing. It don't take much. Somebody come along and say, hey, I'll help you win. When you're sick of losing, that means a lot to you. And I think sometimes we, even as believers, even as God's people, we feel like we're losing all the time. 
And we feel like that because we're programmed, conditioned by the media and by news and by the world and, and, and by Hollywood to believe that we're losing all the time. Uh, but I got news for you. We're on the winning side of this. We ain't on the losing side of it. We ain't waiting to figure out how this turns out. I've read the end of the book. I know how it ends. We're on the right side of this thing. And one of these days, the Lord's going to come back. When he does, it's going to be a prevailing thing. He is going to, in perfect justice and righteousness, deal in virtue and and in wrath with all those that have stood contrary to him and to his word. So in other words, Paul is encouraging them in some things. He's wanting to remind them, listen, you look around, everything looks so bleak, but it's really not that bleak. It is for them. But then he says this in verse 4, but ye brethren. He's been talking about the world and what is awaiting the world. But then he says, but ye brethren are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us. We'll preach to you on this thought tonight, being of the day. Paul states some truths about our standing in Christ Jesus. And then he delivers to us some commandments or some responses that are only natural if we are Bible believers. My preacher friend of mine said the other day, don't be surprised when a Bible believer believes the Bible. And uh, if we're Bible believers and we believe our Bible, it's going to make us Bible believers. And if we believe what the Bible says about this, it's going to produce some things in our life. And I want you to think about how we live in this world that feels like it's shaking apart all the time. Feels like it's so dismal. Feels like all oh, the devil's won and everything's. Uh, is that really our situation as believers? I don't believe it is. See, I believe here's what happened when you got born again. You got translated from the power of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. And, and it's true that this world is dark, but you ain't a part of that anymore. It's true that this world is shaken apart, but your foundation is on him and you've got an anchor steadfast for the soul that, that reaches within the heaven of heavens. I, in other words, we are whole and apart. We are in this world, but here's how Christ said it. We're not of this world. Well, if we're not of this world, what are we? We're of his kingdom. If we're not of the darkness, what are we? We're of the day. And what does that mean for our life? Well, I want you to notice three thoughts tonight and then we'll be done. Notice the first thing that Paul deals with is that we are distinct in the day. So here's the world living in darkness, living in night. Here are believers that though they are in the same world, it's like the, the, the sun, S-O-N, and his sun, S-U-N, is shining in our lives because of his presence. And that produces some things. We are in the day. And what does that do? Well, number one, it makes us distinct. It makes us different than the world around us. Let me tell you, you as a Christian should be different from the world. And, you know, it's funny, you look at like the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, and and, and even to a degree the Seventh-day Adventists, and, and much of their religious identity is wrapped up in striving to be different. But that's not really what you see in the Bible. You don't see in the Bible a striving to be different. Rather, what you see is that as Christ lives through us, that produces a proprietary and unique life in the midst of this world. Here's how the Bible talks about it. Uh, Christ said that, you know, he was the light of the world. Then later on, he said that ye are the light of the world. So the same way that he was in the world, but he was not of the world, that he came unto his own, but his own received him not, that light came into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil, that he came into the world that he had created, but the world knew him not, that as he lives through us, through our obedience to him and fellowship with him, that same light that he is will shine through us, and that will produce a distinct life. Let's say it this way. You ain't got to be weird. You just got to be a Christian. <laughs> 
And in a wicked world, that's going to be weird. It's going to be distinct. It's going to be different. How are we distinct? Well, notice what verse 4 says. He says, but ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Now, what does he mean? What's the analogy here when he talks about darkness? Darkness is used in a number of ways in the Bible. Uh, Sometimes it's relating to uh, moral darkness or spiritual darkness. Sometimes it's referring to what we would call intellectual darkness or, you know, uh, darkness regarding revelation. And I think that's what Paul's dealing with here. When he talks about darkness as it relates to the activity of a thief, what he is talking about is someone being unaware and unable to perceive the thief's entrance into their home and their desire and intent to do ill towards them. He says this, they're in darkness. Why? Because they don't know what's going on. But you and I are not in darkness. We're in the day. And as being in the day, not in darkness, that day will not overtake us as a thief. You know, when you go on vacation, one of the things you always do, I guarantee you do it, is you go through and you leave lights on in the house. Why do you do that? Well, you do that for two reasons. One, to make people think you're home. Uh, Two, because you just love KUB and want to help support their cause. But why does having lights on in a house deter thieves? Well, because you're trying to make them think you are home, and you're also making them realize that if they do break into your house, they are running the risk of breaking in in an environment where they can be perceived and seen and hopefully shot and things like that. And so you're preventing them from doing that. Well, for you and I, listen, we live our life in the light. And here's what it means. It means we are distinct in our knowledge. It's amazing how many Christians go around acting like they don't know what's going on. And, and you know, maybe they don't. I mean, maybe we just live in such a biblically illiterate world where people have just not been taught the Bible. I, I don't know. I don't know what the reason is. Certainly we're living in a day when, when God's people are perishing for lack of knowledge. But whether it's that people don't know, or I think what is far more likely is they do know, but they get some sort of of, of dramatic gra- you know uh, uh, gratification out of living as though the world is burning down around. Whatever the reason is, understand this: the world may not understand, know, perceive the trajectory of the course it's on. But you, as a Bible believer, you know how this thing is. We have a knowledge that they don't have. They could have it. I mean, they could go in a hotel room, pick up a Gideon Bible. Uh, They could go down to the Walmart and pick one up off the shelf, just like you could. Uh, But the world doesn't. And as such, that willful ignorance and and oftentimes the blindness that comes from the spiritual darkness produces in them an obliviousness concerning what's going on in this world. But you and I are not that way, and we should not behave that way. It shouldn't trouble us when the world acts like the world. We've got a Bible that tells us that the world's going to act like a world. It shouldn't trouble us when things get worse. It's amazing to me that we as believers, we know, and I'm talking about people that, you know, we know have correct doctrine concerning. We understand things ain't getting better and better. I ain't no amillennialist. I don't think we're going to evangelize our way out of this mess. I understand the, the, the direction that things are going in this world. Why then would we be surprised when the world continues to go in that direction? We ought to be living with a peace of mind and heart. It ought to be as the world gets worse. And listen, I'm raising two boys. I'm raising kids. I understand it. I, I, I understand the fear and the apprehension, the anxiety of what my kids may have to go through in this world. But but far be it from me as a Bible believer to walk around and, and, and believe and behave and act as though I don't know that things are going exactly according to God's plan. Uh, we have a responsibility to walk in the light of the truth of God's word. And that means not being surprised as the world gets worse. So we're distinct in our knowledge. Notice verse number five. He says this, ye are all the children of light 
and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. This is an interesting verse because on the face of it, if we are to be very frank, it seems sort of redundant. He's already said we're not in darkness. Does he have to double down and and emphasize to us that we are children of light, children of day? And then he even does it again. He says we are not of the night nor of darkness. Why is the Holy Spirit doing this? No word in this Bible is is there for no reason. No word here is wasted. So what is he trying to do? He's trying to emphasize to us that our nature is different from the world around us. We're distinct in our knowledge, but we're distinct in our nature. We shouldn't feel comfortable in the darkness of this world. We're of the day. We shouldn't feel comfortable in, in this world's long, dark, sinful night because we're of the day. We're of the light. And as such, that should produce in us a certain ostracization from this world, an alienation from this world. I, again, I don't think we need to, I don't think we need to raise our kids to be weird for the sake of weirdness, but we do need to condition into them the understanding that if you live as a child of God, you are not going to be in lockstep with this world. There's going to be times that you can't advance in the workplace because you won't do things that dishonor Christ. There's going to be times that you may not be the most popular person uh, because the people around you are wanting you to do things that dishonor Christ. There's going to be times that people are not going to understand the convictions and the standards that you maintain. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. I think that for several generations we have allowed social standing to become the holy grail in, in rearing up children and, and, and we, we've conditioned ourselves to believe that the best we can do for our kids is give them a big bank account, lots of friends and a good retirement. And I'm not against having any of those things, but we've missed what matters. What matters is that our, our children raise up to serve and honor Christ. And so, listen, we're different in nature, and you need to embrace this truth as well. It does mean that there, there will be a certain space between you and the world around you, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. So I would say, number one, we're distinct in the day. But then notice verse number six, therefore. Uh, somebody once said, your therefores are there for a reason, so don't, don't skip over them. Therefore, in other words, predicated on this. In light of this, considering this, therefore, what should that produce in us? Well, produces two things. One, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Why? For they that sleep, sleep in the night. Goes on to say, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. So in other words, number one, we are distinct in the day, but number two, we are to be diligent in the day. Daytime is time to be about business. I know, I understand there are people that work third shift and, and, and strange hours and things like that. And, and uh, uh, you know, there's been times in my life I've had to work schedules I didn't exactly want to work. I don't believe God's necessarily against that. But as a general rule in society, as a general rule in our civilization, we typically sleep when it's nighttime. We typically work when it's daytime. Uh, does that not suggest to us a spiritual parallel as well? Here's the world. They're sleeping their way to destruction. But when God saved you, he woke you up. And now your life is not to be devoted merely to leisure and recreation, but to serving him and pleasing him. Now, how are we to be diligent? Well, in two ways. The first is in our uh, vigilance. He says, therefore, let us not sleep as do others. Now, he's not suggesting that we don't take physical sleep, but he's saying we should not lullaby ourselves to sleep spiritually. We should not check out of the process of serving 
the Lord. And I, I feel like a lot of Christians have done that in, in this day. A lot of people just throwing up their hands and said, I can't figure it out and I don't know who cares. But the truth is, as believers, we are called upon to stay engaged in the cause of Christ, recognizing and living fully in the reality and truth of his soon coming. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others. Well, what are we going to do? Let us watch and be sober, for they that sleep, sleep in the night. In other words, we are called to be vigilant in our life, in the way that we behave. I love the usage of the word sober here. It denotes having a right appreciation of the world around us. God doesn't call you and I to stick our head in the sand like an ostrich and pretend like things aren't what they are. But he does call on us to frame that within a biblical worldview and to respond appropriately in light of that. You say, preacher, what's the difference between the two? Well, I'll tell you the difference right now. There's some people whose perspective is everything's going bad. We can't, nobody wants to hear the gospel. We can't win nobody, Lord. We can't have revival. Let's just sit there and shout her out and wait for Jesus to come. That's not the right perspective. The right perspective should be, hey, listen, this thing's winding down. We better get busy and serve the Lord. We better go out. We, we better try to do something for God because we don't have very much time left in this world. And as this world is shaking apart on its chassis, that gives us more opportunity to win people to Christ. There's people out here in the world that would have never thought about God that are all of a sudden questioning things and wondering about things. In other words, we don't we don't lean away and stick our head in the sand. We lean into this truth and say, now God, make me useful in these closing days of your plan. We need to be vigilant, man. We need to be sober. We need to be busy. We need to be aware. We need to be biblically minded in our in our heart and in our intellect. So he speaks about our vigilance. Then notice number two, we're to be diligent in our virtue. He says, and oh, by the way, they that be drunken are drunken in the night. He says uh, these two behaviors are associated with one another. The nighttime, he says, is a time where uh, people are asleep, and if they're not asleep, they're generally drunk. It's a time when they are escaping the world as it is. That's what drunkenness is all about. It's about escaping the world as it is. He says, you shouldn't be that way. He says, but let us who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. Isn't that interesting? In other places in the book of Ephesians, Paul goes through and details more of the armor of God. But here he just mentions three things, faith, love, and hope. And what he says is this, that our life should be defined by these things. We shouldn't yield our faith. We shouldn't uh, permit ourselves to give up hope And we shouldn't allow ourselves to grow cold in our love of the Lord, our love of the brethren, or our love toward sinners. You really believe that this thing's winding down. That's going to make you want to live live tight and right before the Lord. I told this illustration, I don't know, at some point uh, in the past few weeks, but it was talking about, uh, you know, whenever we was growing up and when Dad was coming home, we always knew Dad always came home 3.15 every single every single day, 3.15. For a lot of years, he came home 2.45, but then they changed his schedule, came home at 3.15. You say, Preacher, I don't care when your daddy came home from work. But the fact that I know that tells you how consistently he came home at those times. And I talked about how that we always became much better children the deeper into the afternoon it got because we knew that dad was coming home. We didn't get wilder. son. I mean, we got milder. We got better because we knew he was coming home soon. We was going to have to face him. By the same token, listen, if we really believe, if we really believe that Jesus is coming soon, that's not going to yield to a carnal fatalism where we say, well, who cares? Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. 
Uh, no, instead what that's going to lead to is we're going to say, we better live right, daddy's coming home. So in other words, we ought to be diligent in the day. But then notice a final thing, and I'll be done tonight. Notice that we are delivered in the day. So what do you mean, preacher? you saying we're waiting on God to deliver us? No, I'm saying he's already delivered us. By, by taking us out of the power of darkness and, and into the kingdom of God's dear son, he's already delivered us from the power of darkness. Uh, you remember what the Lord said whenever they came for him in the garden? He said, this is your hour in the power of darkness. Uh, listen, he yielded himself to that hour in the power of darkness so that you and I could be delivered from that hour and the power of darkness. Uh, he let death take hold of him and he let the devil take hold of him so that they could not take hold of us. And therefore, even though we are living in a dark world, we are not yielded to the power of darkness. Notice what this produces in us. Notice where we gain this deliverance or how we live in the reality of it. First is in the confidence of our relationship. I love this verse nine. It couldn't be any clearer to me for God hath not appointed us to wrath. God hath not appointed us to wrath. And, you know, some people have said, well, preacher, you know, that's talking about, you know, wrath starts halfway through. There's, you know, the pre-wrath and the post-wrath, and that's starting halfway through, and the wrath really don't start till then, and so on and so forth. But remember, the believers that he's writing to believe that they have just missed the rapture. That's what they believe. They believe that they have just missed the rapture. They believe that the tribulation has just begun. And Paul comforts them by reminding them that we are not appointed under wrath. So the way that Paul viewed the perspective of the tribulation was not that wrath begins halfway through, but that all seven years were the wrath of God. And by the way, when you study the tribulation, you'll find that to be true. You'll find that that the, the, the first half of the tribulation, the wrath of God is being poured out on this world, and the last half of it, the wrath of God is being poured out on Israel as a nation. So, I, you know, believe, believe anything you want, but I, to me it couldn't be clear. God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to what? To obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when do we obtain that salvation? I, I think it's true that, that in a practical sense, that salvation will become more of a reality when he raptures us out. But notice how Paul says it in verse 10, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, whether we're living or dead, physically speaking, whether we're waking, alive, awake, or whether we sleep and are dead, irrespective, we should live together with him. Here's what Paul says. He says, I've already straightened out your eschatology. I've already showed you the Lord hadn't come back. But he says, you know, even if he had, it wouldn't change the terms of your relationship with him. Uh, whether you're waking, whether and they were worried about their loved ones that were asleep in the Lord. And they were saying, what about them? Paul says, the Lord still has them. And uh, they were saying, what about us? We're still awake. We're still alive. What about, it says, the Lord still has you as well. In other words, he reminds them that nothing can change the terms of that relationship. You say, preacher, how do I gain encouragement in these days? Well, be reminded that you can have confidence in your relationship with the Lord. You say, preacher, but what will happen next? I'll tell you what won't happen next. You won't lose your salvation. You won't be abandoned by the Lord Jesus Christ. But preacher, I could die, and you'd still be saved even if you did. But preacher, I'll have to live, and you'll still be saved even if you do. It's funny, man. There's, there's. Uh, it seems like half the Christians I know are scared to death of dying, and the other half are scared to death of living. I mean, when I when I talk to people, it seems like half of them are, well, you know, I, I'm just afraid what could take me out. Hey, listen, it may something may take you out, but ain't nothing going to take you out of his hand. And then the other half that I talk to are like, boy, the worst thing that could happen is God give me another 15 years. I just want God to take me home to glory. Well, I got good news for you. If he does leave you another 15 years, he'll be with you every step of the way. 
Listen, you, you can gain encouragement. Preacher, what's going to happen? We're going to have an election. Maybe we will. I'm not convinced we will. But I know whatever dog and pony show they put everybody through, it ain't going to change the nature of my relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. I know no matter who they put up or kill or put down or bury or disappear or whatever, or Epstein or Clinton or whatever they do to people, I, I, I know that no matter what happens, the Lord's still on the throne and I'm still His. I, I'm, I'm delivered through the confidence of our relationship, but then I'm delivered through the comfort of our fellowship. I like verse 11. Wherefore? So the therefores are therefore the reason and the wherefores are therefore reason. Wherefore, he says, taking all this into consideration, here's what you ought to do. Comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. He says, here's what you ought to do. Instead of looking out the window and watching the world burn, you ought to reach over to your neighbor beside you that knows the Lord and encourage him. You ought to reach over to the people around you that love you and encourage you in the Lord. Hey, I, I, I've said this a hundred times, but I've always been, I took a lesson from the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the church at Colossae. You know what? Paul writes this little church, and he says that he longs to see them one day face to face. You know what that means? He had never met these people. Think about all the places Paul had been and preached the gospel and won people to Christ. Why does he write to the church at Colossae? Well, here's the reason he, he gives in the opening verse of Colossae. He says, since he heard of their faith and labor of love, he found somebody that encouraged him and he reached out to him. He said, I could find a hundred people that have give up on God and grow discouraged. Or I could find somebody, even if I didn't have nothing to do with winning them to Christ. I could find somebody that knows the Lord and loves him and gain encouragement from it. You know, there's a similarity in our life. We can spend all our time wringing our hands at how broken and wicked this world is. And I'm not suggesting we dismiss or ignore that truth. But then here's what we ought to follow it up with is turning around and finding somebody that knows the Lord, scooting up close to them spiritually and encouraging them in the Lord. That's why we need the church, man. That's why the writer Hebrews said, uh, forsake not the assembly of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Uh, then he says this, uh, he says, and so much the more as you see the day approach. The closer it gets, the more we need each other in the Lord. The more encouragement we need, the more, the more comfort that we need. And that's what he says. Comfort, wrap your arms around them, spiritually speaking. Edify, build them up in the Lord, encourage them in the Lord. In other words, what it ought to do is produce in us a commitment to one another in Jesus Christ to encourage each other and to help each other as we serve the Lord. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the Lord tonight. If God spoke to your heart about something, listen, maybe you've just allowed the world a pipeline into your heart. <laughs> There's been times that I've done it. I do it more than I wish I I, I had to admit. Times that I just allow the wickedness of the world, the weariness of it all, to get in my head and heart and to affect my spirit, disposition, and attitude. God, forgive me for doing that because I don't have the right to do that anymore. <laughs> not since I got born again. I don't have the right to do that. I'm not even of that world anymore. I'm of the day. If you've let that happen, won't you come down, ask God's forgiveness, and ask him to encourage you and help you to not let that happen. Maybe you've allowed yourself to, to, to slack in your commitment to him. Maybe you've allowed yourself to coast a little bit. Won't you come ask his forgiveness? Say, Lord, put a fire in my heart again. Help me to serve you. Help me to be diligent. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.